he liked my little sister, he was, I mean, he came up to me, he's like, hey, we're going to be brother-in-law someday. You know that? I mean, he was 100%. And had I known how 100% he would be at my bachelor party, I probably would have never invited him to be the best man at my wedding a little over 12 years ago. Uh, Wisdom would have said, you know what? You might end up getting arrested at the end of this bachelor party, which I did. And that was... (laughs) That was Peter's doing, so thank you, Peter, for that. So I'll, I'll tell you the quick story. The, <laughs> we were in a park, and he decided it'd be brilliant to pull out four-foot-long swords and fruit and throw them and slice the fruit together uh, with the swords, and we didn't get arrested for that. But then he, uh, he stripped me down and tattooed Stevie's property on me with henna tattoo. Uh, my wife got to enjoy that on our wedding night, and then... Uh, and then he still stripped down, wrapped me, or clothed me, rode me in saran wrap, and put me in a shopping cart and pushed me around a grocery store, um, and the police didn't find us there. So we were still okay at that point in time in the night, but then uh, the ultimate frisbee game where he, he dressed me up, I thought that the ultimate frisbee game was a safe thing, that the only thing I was going to do was sweat in the summer heat in this leather aviator jacket and a... And an aviator hat and goggles. He, he had me all dressed up, and I thought that that was the joke, that I was going to be all sweaty playing Ultimate Frisbee in this ridiculous costume. But then, about 30 minutes into the game, we hear police sirens, police lights, and the police come screeching up and have us surrounded, and they get out and start yelling at us and uh, line us up in a line, and they're saying, Someone reported that there's been drug dealings going on in the area, so we need to search all of you. And uh, so, of course, I'm perfectly calm, thinking, this is fine, no big deal, and my wedding's tomorrow, uh, but I, I've never done drugs, I'm cool. So they're searching us, and Peter starts kind of freaking out on the policeman. I'm like, Peter, calm down, buddy. He's like, no, you can't do this, this is his bachelor party, you're ruining it. And I'm like, Peter, chill, please chill. And uh, anyway, they get to me, and lo and behold, in the pocket of my coat that Peter had given me, they find drugs. And uh, they, they pull me and they slam my face into the hood of the police car, spread my legs and slap cuffs, clap, slap cuffs on me while they do some tests for the drugs to see if they're real drugs. And uh, of course, they were real. And Peter's yelling at them, no, I bought that jacket at a thrift store. It's not his. You're, you're making a huge mistake. He's just yelling at the cops and the cops are yelling at him, saying, calm down. It's a chaotic crazy, ridiculous scene. But in, in any case, they throw me in the back of the police cruiser and haul me off. And I'm, I'm sitting in the back of the cruiser, a little bit uh, nervous, wondering, what am I going to do? Uh, are we going to move the wedding to the prison? Is, are we going to just postpone what's going what's to happen? Didn't want to spend my wedding day in, in jail. But then, uh, about three miles down the road, they pull over. And after the officers read me my rights, they let me out. And there's all my groomsmen laughing hysterically. Because the whole thing was a big joke, and the cops were in on it. And... <laughs> I got to go and get married, all was well, so thank you so much, Peter, for, for that. I, I'm still planning my payback, uh, so that's coming, I haven't forgotten. So Peter asked me to preach on Genesis 37 today. Uh, I want to hit a few quick highlights in Genesis leading up to this point in the scriptures. Uh, the first one is God gave some promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham land, the, the promised land of Israel. And he also promised him uh, a people. He promised him to make a huge, great nation out of Abram. So then Abraham goes and he has a son with Hagar, Ishmael. 
not the promised one. And then he goes and has a son with his wife. Miraculously, in her old age, she was barren. She conceives and has Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, her oldest, Esau, Jacob, the youngest. Jacob steals the blessing. And so the promise to Abraham is carried on through Jacob and his family and his descendants. And so that is where we pick up here in the start of verse, uh, verse 1 in Genesis 37. Go ahead and read with me. If you have your scriptures, it would be great to pull them out. I don't think I have these on the screen. I'm sorry. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their, to their father. Now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So the first thing we see in this, in the start of this chapter is that Jacob and his sons are living in Canaan. This is the land that God promised to Abram. So they're already dwelling in the land. And, uh, and the family has not really grown that big, but Jacob has 12 sons, all right? And Joseph is the 11th in line of those 12 sons. And we see in this little section the systematic alienation of Joseph from his older brothers, all right? So uh, the first thing he does is he tattletales. He, he brings back a bad report about uh, his brothers to his father. Now, I don't want you to think, when I first read this, I was thinking, you know, Joseph is maybe a three-year-old, and he's coming and saying, Daddy, look what the brothers did. They, you know, that's not at all what happened. Joseph is 17, and his brothers are older, right? So this is not a little toddler tiff that's going on. This is likely Joseph's job. We see a little bit later on in the chapter that, uh, that Jacob would ask Joseph to go and check on the welfare of his brothers and bring back a report. And so this is probably Joseph just doing what his father has asked him to do, but he brings back a bad report. His brothers don't like that. Uh, Jacob also gives Joseph a very colored tunic, a multicolored tunic. Now, dye back in those days was very expensive, and so this was a very expensive robe, likely for royalty or wealthy people. And so Jacob giving this to his brother, was that was a statement. It was, it was saying something, and his brothers hated him for it. And then Joseph has some dreams. We can debate whether he should have told his brothers the dreams, but we, we know the end of the story, and we know that those dreams were actually true, Right? What he, what, he, what he dreamed was, God, what was, was God's plan. This is what God was going to do. And Joseph goes and tells this to his brothers, and his brothers are jealous of him and hate him even more 
for his dreams. The first dream is this bundle of grain, and his brother's bundles are bowing down to him. His brothers, they rightly interpret the dream. They weren't confused about what the dream meant. They said, are we really going to bow down to you? We hate you for telling us that. And then the second dream was very similar to, the, to that first one. I want you to notice the response of the brothers to the second dream in verse 11. We'll, we'll come back to this a lot more late, later, but I'll, I'll read it again. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Do y'all see the difference there? We'll, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit more later. But with this wedge complete, between the relational wedge between the, this family, between Joseph and the brothers, we'll continue on in the story. Verse 12, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem, or sorry, Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to, Do- to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him. And throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that, that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So, quick geography lesson from this section. Uh, we see, if we can project a map up there. Lovely. So you see the, the map has the Mediterranean Sea up there, and this is northeast Africa, where Egypt is located. And then as you go around the eastern shore of the sea, you have Hebron right there, in, which is modern-day Israel down there. And that is where the Jacob and his, and his sons are living. And then uh, Shechem is up there. When I first read this, I, I think... You know, maybe Joseph is traveling to the neighbor's pasture where the brothers have gone, you know, but he actually traveled, it's somewhere between 40 and 50 miles away from Hiram to Shechem. So that's like from New Braunfels to Austin, maybe a little bit more than that, but by foot with an entire flock. So these brothers were way off the beaten path to find pasture land up there. And then, uh, so he's up there and he's wandering around. Where, where are my brothers? They're, they're nowhere, they're nowhere to, in sight. I can't find them. And it says, a man found him. I think this was complete random chance that this man found him. Certainly not the hand of God uh, moving. But a, a man found him wandering in the wilderness. And, and he says, what, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. They're supposed to be pasturing their flocks here. And the man says, this, again, random chance man says, oh, I happened to also hear your brothers say that they were going to Dothan. And so then Joseph goes on to Dothan, which is another 15 uh, or so miles further north. So Joseph is way off the beaten path, and Dothan happens to be a, a major trade route. And so he, he starts getting to Dothan, and of course he's wearing his rainbow robe. And so as he approaches, the brothers unmistakably see him. Because if I were going on a 65-mile-by-foot journey, I would put on my rainbow robe as well. 
So uh, the brothers see him from a distance, and they say, oh, here comes that dreamer. And they start plotting against him. Their first instinct is, let's kill him. Uh, And verse 20 says, let's see what becomes of those dreams of his. Again, we'll talk about that point later as well. But think about what that is. If you, if you understand those dreams as God revealing his will to these brothers, think about how wicked it is that his brothers would say, let's see what becomes of those dreams. We're going to kill him. And uh, Reuben rises up, and Reuben wants to. Now, Reuben may have been motivated by a desire to kind of regain affection of his father by returning Joseph to him. But Reuben says, let's not. Let's spare his life. Let's just toss him into one of those pits. And he had secret plans to go and get him out and, and bring him home to his father. So this is their plan. This is their plot. Let's, let's go ahead and read on and see how their, how their plans unfold, starting in verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt." Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. And then they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So as Joseph approaches the brothers, he, he gets to Dothan, and the brothers carry out Reuben's plot, and they toss him into a pit. And, and the, to, to demonstrate the callousness of these brothers toward, their, toward Joseph, as Joseph is stripped of his clothing, tossed in a pit, and left to die, the brothers sit down and eat a meal. Right there in his presence, they sit down and dine. That, that just shows a callous, selfish, wicked heart. Uh, so a few chapters later, in about six chapters, you'll see the brothers sitting down and dining in Joseph's presence again. This time Joseph is down in a pit. At that point, Joseph is going to be in a position of authority over them. I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but it is, a, it is an interesting thing to think about the, the difference between this one meal that they have in Joseph's presence and then that, that second meal where they are humbled, bowing before him, as the dream said, begging him. They, they're changed from these from these wicked people to, to humble beggars, begging Joseph for food. But, but as they're dining and eating this meal, they look up and there are some Ishmaelites. Now, quick note on the Ishmaelites. Remember Abraham and, his, and Hagar and the child that they had, Ishmael? 
we, we see Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac, and Isaac's family line is, this is the promised nation, this great nation, this multitude, as the numbers being as big as, as many as the stars, as Philip talked about. Isaac's family line is actually rather small. Twelve sons and their families, right? It's, it's taking a while to get there. Ishmael, it seems, has a huge family already. Seems like he's already developed into a nation. They call him the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. I think this is like, you know, saying in the great nation of Texas, there are some Austinites and some San Marcos sites. I don't know what y'all call it. San Martians. <laughs> so good. So the, uh, they're, they're, all, they're already saying, and they looked up and they recognized these people as Midianites who are part of the Ishmaelite nation, and they already have traitors. I mean, this seems like a really well-established nation, and so it almost kind of, comparing that to Isaac, it feels like God is really slow, but God's timing is not our timing, right? His promises happen when his promises happen. And so they look up, and they see these Ishmaelites, and they, they sell him to the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites were going on that map through Dothan, the trade route, down into Egypt, and so now Joseph is taken to Egypt. And if you, if you know the rest of the story, or as you learn the rest of the story, that is a very significant step in the life of Israel, to have Joseph moving to Egypt, because that sets the stage for God's glorious display of his power as he, in the exodus from Egypt, and then the conquering of the promised land. But they, they, they sell him to, to Egypt, and then, then we pick up and we see Reuben, who apparently was not dining with the brothers, because he, didn't, he wasn't a part of this whole selling. He's off somewhere, and he goes to the pit, and he says, the brothers are not there. We get a little vision of his motives in, in having his alternate plan because he tears his clothes and says, as for me, where am I to go? So he's still kind of thinking about himself in this whole process. He's, he clearly had some promise. And we also see his motives because as the brothers go back and deceive their father, saying Joseph has died, they kill a goat, more, more death because of their sin. They kill a goat, dip, it, dip the rainbow robe in the blood and give it to their father, deceive him. Uh, Jacob is mourning. They try and comfort him but their comforting falls short of telling him the truth. They, they continue to deceive him, telling him, you know, it'll be okay, Dad. Sorry that Joseph's dead, even though they know in truth he is alive. Uh, and Reuben is right there with them. So don't, all you Reuben lovers out there, don't, don't love him too much. He was, he was still deceiving his father, not comforting him, still very selfish. So all the brothers, none of them get off the hook. Uh, selfish people, um, this, this, this whole story, uh, chapter 37, is the start of the story that actually ends in chapter 50 when Genesis ends. It's one of my favorite stories in all of history, and I, I, it kind of pains me a little bit to have to stop right here at chapter 37. This is kind of just setting the, setting the ground, but then if I went on, I, I, Peter wouldn't have anything to preach on for the rest of the year, so I'll, I'll, let him, I'll save some of it for him, and I'll go ahead and stop there, but we have laid the foundation of this amazing story and, and as we've done that, I want to I point out three little pieces of application, all right? We're not going to focus on Joseph, because Joseph will have plenty of time to focus on him over the next, y'all will have plenty of time to focus on him over the next months uh, and weeks, but we're going to look at other, some other major players in this story, God and the brothers, all right? So the first point of application is that God is sovereign. We see this so clearly in this passage. God is a sovereign God. What is God doing in this story? It seems like he is doing the exact opposite. Remember, where did the story start? Jacob, who is the, the promised line, this is where God is fulfilling his promise of creating a nation, Israel. They're living in the promised land. And this entire story is God actively working to move them away from the promised land and into slavery in Egypt, right? 
So, but God is clearly at work. We see that throughout the entire course. Think about just the, the random chance man who they met there. God, God was moving them to Dothan, and he made sure that Joseph got there by appointing a man to come and both overhear the brothers say, let's go on to Dothan, and find Joseph wandering in these vast pasture lands of Shechem and, and pointing him forward. God was at work throughout this, at every step along the way. We see God working. We see it in the dreams. God is doing, he has, he has a plan. Um, so this story is really easy because we have a God's eye view. We can see exactly what God was doing. We, we, if we were in the midst of the story, if we were the brothers or Joseph or Jacob, we might be a little bit more worried, right? It's easy to get consumed with, oh my goodness, my brother's getting more blessing than I am. My, my brother's getting more favor with my father than I am. I have to do something about this. I'm panicked about this, right? It's easy for us to get selfish. Or if we're Joseph being imprisoned in, in Egypt, it'd be easy to fret and worry in that situation. But we have a God's eye view. We see the end as it is from the beginning. And God has that exact same view in each one of our lives, right? So we see right now, we can see exactly what God was doing. God could have just let Jacob and, his, and the people continue on in Canaan, multiplying to a great nation, and they just dwell there. That could have been God's plan, but God's plan always brings him the greatest amount of glory. It draws us to our knees in worship of him, and his plan was to enslave them in Egypt for 400 years so that he could put himself on display as he rescues them out of Egypt. As in, that, in the amazing Exodus story, probably even better than the Joseph story, one of the few, of Moses leading the people out of Egypt and into the promised land and then, or into the wilderness and then the wilderness wanderings and then the, the uh, conquest of Canaan. This is God putting himself on display. This was his plan. In the same way, God's plan in the whole of scripture is not just the simple plan that we would have. If I were writing, if I were writing the world, I would have thought, I'm going to create a world. It's going to be perfect. Nothing bad will ever happen. The end. That would have been my plan so garden, the Garden of Eden would have been my plan A. God's plan A was not the Garden of Eden. God's plan A, before he even created this, the first Adam, God's plan A was not the Garden of Eden. God's plan A was to redeem a people, to redeem us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Because that is the, dis- the greatest display of his glory, his grace, his hatred of sin. This is put on display perfectly in that moment. And that was God's plan A. So all of history leading up to that and all of history since that is God's exact perfect plan. And God is sovereign, working his plan to perfection. So let's go back to my bachelor party really quickly. Uh, the, the sovereign Peter, who, was the, who I had placed um, in my stupidity as sovereign over my bachelor party, the sovereign Peter had a plan that evening, and he was not worried <laughs> He didn't, he didn't worry one bit. His heart was not racing. He was even yelling at policemen because he was so confident in his plan, right? Now, had I, had I known this plan, had I had a God's eye view or a Peter's eye view, had I known what was happening, would I have been worried in the back of that police car? Would I have even been thinking, what's going to happen to my wedding? What are we going to do? Like racing in my mind. Now, the guys, this is probably the first Peter knows that I I'm actually worried because when I got out of the police car, I was just like, oh yeah, I knew all along. No big deal. To- totally. I did, I did the respectable thing and lied to their faces, but I would, have, I would have never worried in the slightest had I known the plan, right? But in the midst of it, I was panicked. Do y'all, do y'all see that? 
in our lives, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our stories, if we trust that God has a sovereign plan, we will not be anxious. We will not worry. We can trust him. He is a trustworthy God. Now, God, God also, the second point of application, God is a God who wants to make his will known. So he is, he is not a God who just has a plan that he keeps secret, but he is a God who makes that will, his will known to us. So let's look, at, let's look at this story here. What ways did God make his will known to Jacob and his family? First of all, before any of them were even born, in Genesis 15, God told his will exactly to Abraham. He told him what he was going to be doing in this situation. Genesis 15, 13, and 14 says this, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. This thing that God is doing through Joseph, enslaving them in this nation that is not theirs, God told Abram he was going to do this before any of them were even born. God has a plan, and he wants to make it known. Uh, he, he made it known in those dreams. God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to tell Joseph and the brothers what he was doing, but he did. He said, here is what's going to happen in those dreams. God was even pointing to them, to the, pointing the, giving them clues about the famine. Think about this. They were, they were in Hebron, and they had to travel 40 to 50 miles away to find pasture land in Shechem. And when they got there, the pasture land wasn't there, so they traveled another 15 miles to get, to get good pasture. The, the need to travel that many miles away from their home to find good pasture should have clued them in. A famine might be coming. What, what is God doing here? There's a, there's, there might be a famine, and they could have started thinking. Joseph, eventually, through the dreams that, that Pharaoh told him, knew about the famine and planned accordingly. Maybe these other things were also cluing him in that it was coming. They threw him into a pit. That pit usually is full of water that they would draw and give water to their flocks. What did, what did Moses put down? Why did he include that detail that the pit was dry? I think he included that because he, that was God telling them a famine is coming. This pit that normally has water is dry. God wants to make his will known to us. He doesn't keep it hidden. I, I, think, about, uh, I think about philosophically, I, I was a science major, and so I become convinced through science that God exists. I, I, I wasn't one of those things where I was just easy to convince, and I, where I was just like, oh, I just believe I, which is cool. If you, if you have that kind of faith, that's awesome. That's not how my mind worked. I had to have all kinds of evidence lined up. But the good news is the evidence is there, and I am thoroughly convinced from science that God exists. All right? And then after that, I started thinking, okay, now what about who is this God? And then I realized that that question is quite silly because if the God who created everything, if the, if the God who spoke the universe into creation, the all-powerful God, wanted to keep himself hidden from us, then trying to find out who he is is a, is a pointless exercise, right? So the, question, the real question, the second question, does God exist? The second question is, does this God want to be known? And I see in all of nature and, and in the evidence that scriptures are reliable and really his revelation to us that God is a God who wants to be known. And from that fact, if the all-powerful God wants to be known and he wants to be known through a book, I have zero problem being convinced that, the, that this book is inerrant that this is the will of God revealed to us. So this is one way that God reveals himself to us is through the words of scripture. If you read it in here, this is God's will for you. If God says in here, 
Go therefore and make disciples. God's will for all of us is that we would be about the Great Commission. That is not uh, just for the gifted and evangelist people. That is for everyone. Now that's a hard one for me because I like to drive into my garage and close the door before my neighbors can get to me. But it's very convicting. Uh, I, I recently had coffee with a friend of mine who, who sat down and he, he had just recently started dating a girl and he told me that God is okay with him having sex with his girlfriend. And I said, oh, oh really, that's interesting, why? <laughs> and he said, he said well, for, for starters, I don't feel guilty after we do it. Secondly, this, is drawn, this has made our relationship so much stronger. We love each other so much more because we have such a well-rounded relationship now. When we weren't doing that, it was kind of this weird thing. And the third thing he said is, how could God really expect someone of my age to not be having sex? Um, and so those were his reasons. And I opened up to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I said, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this. I, I, I didn't really do this because that... I, I actually did read this to him, but it wasn't as like in your face as what I'm doing now. <laughs> I, I, but I, I did eventually get around to reading this to him. I said, for this is the will of God. Sometimes, the scripture doesn't always say this is the will of God. Usually when it, sa- when it says it, you really pay attention, right? So the, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And it continues on for a while, and in verse 7 it says, For God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God reveals himself in Scripture. And when he says something in Scripture, it is his will, and it is, it is silly to think that his will is anything else. So my friend uh, should have listened to this, because God will never reveal a will that is outside of what is said is in Scripture. Now, there are other ways that God reveals himself. We see in this story that he reveals himself in dreams. Uh, we see throughout Scripture prophecy. We see uh, in Acts, we see Jesus appear to Paul and say, go to this place, right? We also see Paul sometimes just saying, I perceived that I was supposed to go to Macedonia. So we see a variety of other ways that God reveals himself. And when that happens, how should we, how should we respond? How should we interact with that? I think, I think this passage in Genesis 37 actually gives us some good clues as to what is a wise way to respond. So if God reveals himself not through Scripture, but in some other means, what, what should we do? The first thing is we need to check it with Scripture. Yeah. If it comes in conflict with Scripture, that is not God revealing himself to you. God will never reveal himself to you. He'll never say, go and sleep with your girlfriend. I'm cool with it. When he clearly says, my will is that you be sexually pure. The second thing we should do is we should not respond like the brothers respond to those dreams. Okay? The brothers heard the dreams, they rightly interpreted the dreams, and they said, I don't like what that's saying, and therefore, it's not true. We should never outright reject anything. So let me, let me give you a picture of something that happens to me sometimes. I, have, I, I work at a school, parents will come up to me and they'll say, God told me to tell you, and then fill in the blank. So let's just say, God told me to tell you that the fifth grade English curriculum is wrong and it needs to be this book. Okay? So how should I respond to that? It's a lot of work for me to change curriculum. So I might be inclined to do what the brothers did and say, no, that's not what God told you. I don't think that's wise. I don't think we should ever just outright say, no. All right. So first of all, we, does the Bible say what curriculum to use? It doesn't. I mean, that's the first step. Yeah. It's in line with the Bible. Second step is uh, don't outright reject it. Now, I also don't think that Jacob's response, 
that Jacob, Jacob's response is actually good, but I don't think Jacob could have responded to the brothers by saying, I heard this dream. I hear what you're saying in this dream. I rightly interpreted it. Brothers, you bow down to Joseph right now. Jacob could have done that, right? This is God's will. Bow down. Do it right now. Because was that God's will for them to bow in that moment? No. no. So, so that's, that's, that's probably not. So I shouldn't just also on the other side go and say, okay, you said God said to change the curriculum. You said God said to do it. So it has to be his will. We're changing the curriculum and we're not going to delay obedience. We're doing it now. So get those books into the, new, into the classes. That's also not a wise response. All right. I think Jacob's response here is, is beautiful in verse 11. Let's read it again. So verse 11 says, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I think that's such a beautiful picture of wisdom. When God reveals himself, not through scripture, but through some other means, I think it is so wise to keep the saying in mind. So I would, my response to, the, to that mom would be, thank you for sharing. I will keep that in mind. And then I would consider it. I would, I would seek counsel and consider whether this actually is. This might be, God might have actually told this woman, the fifth grade curriculum is wrong and it needs to be changed, right? So it's, it's wise for me to listen to that and even be willing to go through some, some trouble of my own life to see if that is actually God's will. In the same way, Jacob kept the saying in mind, is this what God is doing? And in the end, he saw that it was. Why did the brothers not do that? Selfishness. So that's the third point. Our selfishness makes us want our will more than God's will. Our selfishness makes us want our will more than God's will. Look at the brothers in verse 20. They, they actively fought to keep God's will from happening. Read, read verse 20 again with me. Starting in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. These brothers were jealous because they wanted their father's affection. They wanted, they wanted what Joseph had. So there's this competition, and they said, Joseph is getting blessed. I am not. I want to be blessed. This isn't fair. I want that, right? And so as a result, instead of listening to God's will, they were ready to kill. They were ready to deceive. They were ready to do, to do harm to anyone who came in their way so that they could get what they wanted. So what happened as a result of this? It brought slavery. Joseph was enslaved. It brought mourning for their father who was mourning. And it brought this, you'll see in the coming weeks, the brothers did not find freedom in getting their way. They found a burden of guilt on their shoulders. They were trapped as well by, by their sin. So C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in that book, he has this great quote. It says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Did y'all catch that? Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, no, you can have your way. You get it. We are just like the brothers. We are consumed by our desire for, for ourselves, for our self-advancement, for the approval of others around us. We want what we want. And when we wake up, oftentimes our goal each day is not, God, thy will be done. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit like the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
we pray and we, we, we wake up and we say, who do I have to hurt to get my way? Who do I have to step over to, to advance at my job? Who, who do I need to belittle so that other people will think highly of me? What do I need to do to make sure that I am approved of in this place? This morning when you came here, I think some of you probably did not come here free to worship God because you were too concerned with what others around you were thinking of you today. I know I, I, know I often am like that. But, <clears throat> so uh, I think I'll, it was about a year before I actually wanted to adopt that I became convinced that God wanted us to adopt. So I, I, I knew that God wanted us to adopt at this point in the timeline. Sorry, I'll be on this side for you guys. And then uh, I actually wanted to adopt at this point. So there was a gap there, right? And in that, in that intermediate time, when I knew God was calling our family to adopt and from when I actually wanted to, I avoided the conversation with my wife. I actually said, we need to not talk about this in our home. I even made that kind of a, a rule. Uh, <laughs> and I, I didn't read certain passages of Scripture I, I kind of tried to avoid certain friends who were adopting because I knew that it would make me feel guilty. Uh, I was trying to find excuses to not have to go to adoption conferences, but I ran out of them, and eventually I went to an adoption conference. And when I went there, God completely changed my heart. I, I left that conference saying, I want to adopt. So I would wake up in the morning and be praying, God, bring us a son into our home. And at that point in time, my will and God's will were, were synced up. And that, that is the beauty of it, is not waking up saying, God, I want what I want. Give me my way. Because that should be your biggest, greatest fear in life is that, you would, that God would actually eventually say, you know what? You can have your way. That should, that should terrify you that God would ever say, go ahead. The, the, there's a great grace that God doesn't give us our way. Uh, the, these brothers wanted their way. And in the end, even after they carried out their plan and God didn't interfere with their plan being carried out, right? Even after that, we see that God was carrying out his plan from beginning to end. And they did, even in the midst of, he used their plan. I don't want to ruin Genesis 50, but it says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. And so God was carrying out his plan perfectly, and that is a great grace. When you wake up tomorrow morning, make it your prayer. God, thy will be done. Even pray, even pray the opposite. God, please don't give me my way. God, please don't let me have my will. I only want your will. Let's, let's bow our heads and, and reflect for a moment. As, as we reflect on this truth, that God is sovereign, that God has a plan, and that God's plan is good, it is best, it is exactly what you want. You want God's plan Think about where your heart is. Where has your heart been this week? Who have you been serving this week? Who are you serving this morning? Go ahead and, go ahead and just ask God to reveal sin in your life. If you have been serving yourself, your desires, your plans, ask God to reveal that to you. He's revealing anything that is a great grace of God to show you your sin. Confess it to him. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So go ahead and confess. 
to the Lord this morning. God's story did not end with with Joseph in Egypt. God delivered them from Egypt, gave them the promised land, but it didn't even end with that. Out of the promised land, out of the promised people would emerge his son Jesus. The pinnacle of all of history was to pour out your sins on Jesus. By his wounds we are healed. You have been healed today if you are confessing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Those sins are not yours. God sees you as righteous. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your beautiful plan. We love your plan for this world. We may have written it differently, but God, we see your plan and it is beautiful and we give you glory for it. You have redeemed a multitude of people through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. God, you have redeemed me through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. If, if, that, is the, if that is the cry of people's hearts in here, you have redeemed them through the death of your son. They may have this wicked heart, just like the older brothers who, who want their own way, who's, who they are their own God. That might be their desire, but God, you have redeemed them and you have removed that sin as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for your glorious plan. We love you, Lord God. We thank you for redeeming us. In Jesus' name.